What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. And Jared is going to introduce our guest today. Yeah, today we got a pretty cool guest on here. Uh, Tim, he's 27 years sober, and he found sober sobriety with the help of fitness. Uh, so yeah, we'd love to hear your story, Tim. Absolutely. I am going to correct you real quick. Um, I was in addiction and drug abuse for 27 years. Oh, yeah. damn. Yeah, no, oh, no, no, man, 27 years. If I was sober for 27 years, true, that'd be a miracle. <laughs> yeah, see, you look, um, too, look too young for that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I have 17 months next week completely clean and sober from all my alternating chemicals after a 27-year long addiction to drugs and alcohol. Amazing, Tim. Congrats, buddy. Thank you. All right, Tim. So what we do most times, man, we uh, we mostly get to hear people's stories, you know, what life was like for them growing up, uh, active use, then kind of how they transitioned into recovery and, you know, what made them uh, make those make the choice to enter recovery and uh, what's helping them stay, stay clean, you know? Uh, okay. So we're, we're really thankful that you're here. Uh, congratulations on your clean time. It's amazing. Thank you. Uh, super motivational. And uh, take it away, man. Okay. I'm, I'm born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, here on the East Coast. I grew up fairly with uh, in a normal family. My father was a police officer, um, and my mother actually growing up is not kind of normal. She was a professional bodybuilder um, when I grew up as a small child. Now, my father did end up leaving um, when I was the age of six, between six and seven, I was in first grade and when my mother split up and as a small young child, I didn't know why him and my mother broke up. I, I thought it was my fault. I have a brother who's 10 years older than me. So I always thought it was my, it was my fault. They broke up. Why would he stick around for 17 years for my brother? but left when I was in first grade. So I, I truly thought it was me. You know, what did I do? Could I have been a better son? Could I have listened more? Could I have cleaned my room more? I really took that burden on me as a young, small child. And he would call and say he was coming to pick me up. I think they had some deal where he picked me up every two or three weeks. And he would call and say, I'm coming to get you. We're going to go do this stuff. And I'd pack my bags. I'd sit at the front door and an hour would go by. The second hour would come and then the phone would ring and he would say, oh, I can't come this weekend to get you. I got to I got to work overtime or something came up. That happened so many times that when my mom told me my father would come to pick me up, I wouldn't even bother packing because I knew the phone was going to ring within an hour or two and he was going to cancel on me. So I grew up without my actual biological father. In fifth grade, my mother did meet my stepdad. They ultimately got married and he was in my life for the next 28 years of my life. So I did have a father-ish figure. And I say ish because it was no bond there from child to son. Um, he taught me how to be a carpenter. He taught me how to water ski, snow ski. He taught me all the cool things, but he didn't have that bond uh, as, you know, of life experiences and how to pass down, how to grow up to be a man. So that affected me a lot. Um, and I think I, I filled that void with playing sports because I was looking to be accepted. I was looking to excel at things. I was looking for that attaboy kind of a 
kind of a here you go. So I played baseball for eight years. I was the all-star pitcher on the team. I played football. I was one of the best running backs on the team. Um, and here in Baltimore in middle school, I actually grew up with uh, Brandon Novak and Bucky Lassick. And I was on the amateur skateboards team down here. I was, in, I was sponsored by independent trucks back in the day. I was on my way to becoming a professional skateboarder. And then I got introduced into alcohol and drugs my ninth grade year of high school. And before I actually started drinking and drugging, um, I became a junior Olympic and golden glove boxer. So I filled my life with athletics. The ninth grade of my high school year, uh, they had a welcome to high school freshman party and my buddy had it. And he invited pretty much the whole ninth grade. It was a huge party. And we got there and there was alcohol. And that is the very first time I ever tried alcohol. I drank so much. I got so sick, man. I was like, the next day, the hangover, the throwing up the whole deal. And I remember my mom picking me up. And she was like, you drank alcohol last night, didn't you? I was like, yeah. She's like, you're going to be sick for the rest of the day. I'm not going to punish you because your whole day's ruined. And hopefully this uh, deters you from ever drinking again. And it kept me from drinking until my senior year of high school. I, did, I wanted nothing to do with drinking. And drugs weren't even on my radar at that point. I'd never even seen them, been around them, nothing. My senior year comes around. And, and the summer before my senior year started, I signed up to be in the Marine Corps. So I knew once I graduated high school, I was going into the military. So I figured, you know what? I'm going to blow off some steam this year. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to go to some parties. I'm going to experiment with drugs and alcohol because next year when I graduate, shit's going to hit the fan. I'm going into the Marines. So I started going to parties, started drinking. And once I started going to parties and feeling comfortable drinking, I was open to whatever was at the parties. I started smoking pot, um, started doing LSD a lot, like almost every weekend, mushrooms, and believe it or not, when I was in high school, PCP was around pretty heavy. I started smoking PCP, pain pills, whenever I could get my hands on them. But it all stemmed from that alcohol first touching my lips. Once I hit, once alcohol hit my, hit my lips, whatever was at the party was fair game. I was ready to go. Let's do it. And for me at 18, I was like, it's just a phase. Uh, uh, let me get it all out. Next year, I'm really going to be serious and, and let me have fun. I graduated. I go into the Marine Corps. The drugs 100% stopped. There was no drugs in there was no drugs in the Marine Corps. I got tested on random, so that stopped. But once I graduated boot camp and I got stationed down in North Carolina, as soon as we were done at four o'clock, we left the base and went to the bars. We went to the strip clubs and we partied. And the bases, of, I mean the uh, the bars around the bases. Their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So they would serve us at 18, 19, 20 years old. They had no problem serving us as long as we were in the military. Their only stipulation was you couldn't stand there with the actual beer in your hand in case the authorities walked in, because then they would know they were serving underage uh, minors. So you'd have to take a drink and sit it down at the table and play pool or talk to your friends and then take it up to drink. And at 18, 19, 20 years old, we're seeing our sergeants at these same bars in these, in these same strip clubs. And these are late 20, early 30 year old men. And they would just be like, make sure your ass is up at 4am to go running and do what we have to do tomorrow. We don't care if you're out partying. 
don't get in trouble by the law and make sure you're up at four o'clock. So there was no deter. They weren't trying to stop us from drinking. It was almost as if we were expected to drink and be prepared in the morning the next day to do exactly what they asked us to do. In 95, my unit got deployed to Somalia for Operation United Shield. So we ended up doing six months in Somalia. Now, this is right after uh, Black Hawk Down happened. The war just ended, but we were there to do a peacekeeping mission to keep things under, keep things cool and to help the cleanup process. So I got to see the ramifications of what war does to a country, to the people. Uh, I saw the dead bodies. I saw the blown up buildings. I saw things that is not normal to experience as a 19, 20 year old young man. <laughs> I ended up coming back. I did another five months in, in uh, a camp with June, and then my 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 contract was up, so I get discharged. I come home, and the first month was great, man. It was like, man, I don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning. I don't have to run five miles today. I don't have to wear my uniform. I don't have to shave. It was kind of like a decompression, like ah moment, like ah oh, man, I I can relax. The second month came around, and it was like a no shit factor. I'm like, man, I, I got to get a job. I, I got to get a vehicle. I got to start paying some bills here. I'm, I'm back at my mom's house. I got to start helping her out with the electric and, and food and stuff. The third month came for me being home and I got severely depressed. Um, I stopped showering. I stopped shaving. I didn't want to leave my bedroom. I was drinking every day. I started smoking pot again because now I don't have to worry about the drug tests started doing LSD again and mushrooms. And, and if my buddies had pain pills on them, I'd start taking them again, whatever I could get my hands on, whatever's around. Cause I didn't have to worry about drug testing. And I found myself one day sitting in my bedroom and, and, and just completely lost. Like, what am I doing? What's my purpose? I'm no longer in the military. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I go into my stepfather's armoire and I grab his gun and I sit it on my lap. And I'm looking at it and I'm contemplating using it. And I call my girlfriend and uh, I say, hey, I, I'm sitting here. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I have a gun on my lap and I'm contemplating using it. And she's at my house in like five minutes. She comes in, she takes the gun from me, she puts it back. My mom gets home from work and I tell her there's something wrong. I, I'm severely depressed. I don't feel right. I didn't tell her that I just had my stepdad's gun in my lap because she would have freaked out, had me committed, and I really didn't want to go through that. But I did tell her I was very depressed, something was up. So she made some doctor's appointments for me, going to the doctor's office, and they diagnosed me with bipolar one manic depressant disorder. They started, they started putting me on medicines. Well, I'm not being truthful with the doctors at this time. I'm not telling them that I'm drinking a six to 12 pack beer a day. I'm not telling them I'm smoking pot, I'm taking pain pills, I'm tripping, I'm doing whatever, anything I can get my hands on. So the medicines that they were putting me on, they were not working whatsoever. I would go back every 30 days and do a checkup and how's the medicine work? I'm like, nothing's changed, nothing's going. Okay, well, maybe we got the milligrams wrong. Let's up the dosage. Go back for another checkup. Okay, well, maybe they're just not the right medicines for you. We'll just take you off of them and put you on two different ones. And that cycle of on and off medicines went on from the age of 21 up until I went to rehab at the age of 44, because I never was truth, truthful with the doctors. I was never honest telling them 
and I was drinking and drugging every single day. So it didn't matter what medicines they were going to put me on, what milligrams, what cocktail, none of it was going to work because the alcohol and the drugs were in my system. So me and my wife meet, we have our first child, we move in together. I'm doing pretty good. I got a nice job. Uh, I worked at 84 Lumber, I believe, at that time. And uh, I was co-manager, making good money. I was maintaining my life. I was paying my bills. I was going to work. But I was still drinking every day. I was still smoking pot every day. I was still taking pain pills. My second daughter comes along. And we had sold our second house, moved up to a farm. And I just lost another job. And what I mean by another job is from the time I was 20, when I got out of the Marines, up until I was about 40, I had 46 employments. And that's all due to my mental illness and drug and alcohol abuse. And I always thought it was just, this job isn't for me. I'll move on to another one. I'll stay here for three months. If I didn't like it, I quit. I, I wouldn't just, I just wouldn't even go. I wouldn't even call. And I just get back and look on the paper and go to another interview and get another job. So that went on for years. And finally, I was 32 and I just lost the job again. And um, my wife's like, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. I just, I just can't get a job. I can't keep a job. I don't know what I want to do in life. I'm completely lost. And, and she's like, well, we got to figure out something. We have two kids now. We have a mortgage. You know, we got to do something. And I said, I'm, I really miss sports. I really miss competing and being in shape. And she said, well, I'll give you one year to, to find something, to do something. The bills are paid for right now. I'll give you one year. At the end of the one year, you got to get a full-time job. Like, enough's enough. So this is when mixed martial arts was really getting huge and big. Well, already been big, but really coming around. And um, I said, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the mixed martial arts arts club down the street and I'm going to start training and fighting. And within five months, I had my first fight, seven months, a second fight. And I fought for the next three years. And I, I fought on TV in Atlantic city, Harris casino. I had sponsors. I was doing pretty good. Now I wasn't making that much money. It was 1500 to $2,000 tops per fight. And I was only fighting like four to five times a year, if that, depending on the, the fight camps and, and the, the dates in between. So I wasn't making a lot of money, but I felt as if I was filling a void that I, that I had lost since being out of the military. Finally, my last fight comes up. I'm 35. And at, at, during the end of the fight, I tear all three ligaments in my rotator cuff. I completely tear my rotator cuff. And... I get back to the locker room and I can't put my shirt on. So my trainer helps me put my shirt on. I go back out to where my family and friends are and I'm holding my beer in my left hand. And usually my dominant hand is my right hand. And my wife notices, why are you holding your beer in your left hand? And I said, I can't lift my hand. I can't lift my arm up. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I can't lift it above my belly button. And she's like, you've got to be kidding me. I said, no, I did something. She said, you're done. That's it. You're 35, you're done, you had fun. Now we got to go see what's going on. So I go to the doctors and sure as shit, I tore all my rotator cuff. I had to have major constructive surgery on my rotator cuff. And that started the next four years of abusing pain medicine. And during those four years of me abusing pain medicine, I had four more surgeries. I had to have two neck operations. 
I had to have a hernia operation and reconstructing surgery on my right arm because I tore all the ligaments and tendons down in my forearm. So they just kept giving me pain pills, pain pills. And we're talking, this is 10 years ago, or maybe eight. So it wasn't like it was now to where they would only give you a little bit, then you'd have to go see a pain management clinic. I would just directly go to my doctor and say, I'm still in pain. And he would say, well, what are you taking now? Oh, I'm taking the Percocets, but um, it messes up my stomach. Can we get something else? Sure, I'll put you on hydrocodones. I'd go back in the next month. How's the hydrocodones working? Oh, well, they're, they're okay, but they don't have the kick that the Percocets had. You know, okay, well, I'll tell you what, we're just going to put you straight on Oxycontins because they seem to do the best for everybody. So he put me on Oxycontins and I ended up being on 20 milligram Oxycontins for the next two years. And like every good addict, I wasn't taking one every four hours. I was taking two and three every three to four hours. I was finishing, finishing my prescription two weeks earlier before I had a refill. And I would always come up with an excuse. Oh, I'm, I dropped it in the toilet, but I hit it with my elbow and it fell and I spilt it everywhere. Can I get another refill? And they would refill it to a point. And then when they wouldn't refill it, I would just call my friends to get what I needed for the next week or two to hold me over till my prescription got filled. During this time, I'm drinking 12, sometimes 18 beers a day on top of taking eight to 10, 20 milligram oxys every single day. And it got to a point where I'm, I'm, I started to get scared. And I'm telling myself, man, this is how people die. I'm taking all these oxys. I'm drinking a 12 to sometimes 18 beers a day. I'm going to freaking die in my sleep. Like, this is how people die. I'm going to go to sleep one night and not wake up. And I genuinely got scared. And my addictive personality, my mental illness steps in and says, well, if you're going to die, you might as well do it by your own hands. So I reach over on my nightstand and I open up the bottle of my oxys and I have 18 of them in a bottle. I take all 18 of them. And I drink a 12 pack of beer within like two and a half hours. And I remember going, getting back to my bed and laying down and simply praying, please don't let me wake up because I want the pain to stop and I can't stop taking these drugs and alcohol. I just want it to end. And I wake up the next morning and I get up and I directly go into the bathroom where my refill of 30 is sitting in, on the counter in the bathroom. And I open up the bottle and I pour all 30 of them down the toilet and I look in the mirror and I remember telling myself, I don't care how bad this gets. I'm never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days, I was the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. Insomnia, sweats, nausea, throwing up, going to the bathroom, the jitters, racing thoughts. And every morning when I would wake up, I would look in the mirror and say, we're never doing this again. Remember how this feels. Don't ever do this to yourself again. I was able to stop the pain medicine by myself. But now I'm missing something. I'm used to having alcohol, my pain medicine, and my marijuana. Well, now my, now my pain medicine's missing. So it feels like I don't have that, that, middle, that middle man there. What am I going to do? So I get in my truck one day and... Uh, I'm like, I'm going for a ride, man. I'm just not, I'm beating myself up. You know, I'm an addict. I can't stop drinking. Me and my wife are fighting. My kids, you know, me and my kids aren't getting along. I've lost jobs. Me and my mom aren't getting along. And I go take a ride through this park. 
And this is a beautiful park where people go fishing and hiking and walk their dogs and take their boats out and stuff. And I get around to the bend and I'm, I'm driving through the park and I'm like banging on my steering wheel, you know, please give me a sign that I'm not alone. Please let me know that I'm not a piece of shit, that I have a purpose in life. And I get around the bend of this park and there's a tree where mm-hmm. my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his car and hit the tree and lost his life at the age of 18. And on the tree is a picture of him and there's a book there and you can put flowers there and you can go up to the tree and talk to him. And I get out of my truck and I go up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, I'm like, man, I'm lost, brother. I was like, what the hell am I here for? I can't stop drinking. I've lost all these jobs. Me and my wife are, are in the verge of a divorce. I, what is my purpose in life? Can you please just send me some type of sign that I'm not alone, that somebody's watching out over me because I, I don't know what's going on and I have no direction in life. And I get back in my truck and I go to leave the park. And I'm crying. I, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I'm in bad shape. And I can't really drive. So I pull over. And instead of pulling over on the right-hand side of the road where the where the road's leading, I pull over on the left-hand side facing oncoming traffic and I park and I'm crying and about 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and now we're hood to hood. And I watch this man get out of his vehicle and he opens the back door and he grabs his dog and he's about to go walk the dog at the, at the, uh, over by the water. And I'm looking at this man. I'm like, man, he looks awfully familiar. And I'm looking and all of a sudden it dawns on me. It was my best friend who passed away in 1996. It was his father. I hadn't seen him in 21 years. This is March 16, 2017. And I get out of my truck and I say, Mr. Bill. And he looks at me, he's like, Timmy, what's going on? You okay? And I broke down, I fell on the curb, I'm crying. I'm like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. I can't stop, I have no direction, I'm lost. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder And he says, Tim, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in Myrtle Beach at a family reunion. I was supposed to leave at 630 this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come walk the dog at 10 a.m. this morning here at this park. And I look at him. I said, I just stopped at Bill's tree and I asked him to send me a sign that I wasn't alone, that everything was going to be okay, that somebody was watching out over me. And he looked at me because I truly believe I was here to see you this morning. And we hugged and we talked for like 15 minutes. And as I'm leaving the park, I feel, I feel better. I feel as if, okay, you know, I'm being watched. Everything's going to be all right. I'm going to be okay. And my addictive personality steps in and says, you're right. So you don't have to stop drinking. You don't have to stop drugging because you're being watched now and nothing's gonna to happen to you. You're bulletproof. So for the next four years from 2017 up until 2021, when I got into rehab, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank in my entire life. To fill the void of the, medis- of the uh, pain pills not being there, I started supplementing it with fireball whiskey. And it just started with buying four or five miniatures in the morning and I would pound them back And that would give me that hot, warm feeling that the pain medicine used to do. And I'll be like, okay, you know what, man, this this is what I was missing. So I'd start off with four or five of them, go to work, leave work and pick up my 12 pack of beer and finish them off before I went to bed. And that was my cycle for about a year. After a year, I noticed that 
I was starting to gain weight. My, my, my skin was red. I wasn't feeling good. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stop drinking beer and just drink whiskey and smoke pot because that's the answer. You know, that, that, that's what really, that's what I really need. So I'd stop in the morning and I'd pick up a sleeve of fireball whiskey and that's 10 miniatures in, in a, in a pack. And the reason I never stopped and picked up a big bottle was again, my addictive personality stepped in and said, don't buy a big bottle because then you'll truly know how much alcohol you're drinking throughout the day. And then it will be real. These miniatures, I could take them, throw them out my window while I'm driving or throw them in the trash and forget how many of them I drank during the day. So it wasn't relative to me. So I wouldn't really know how much I was drinking. I'd get to 10 in the morning. I'd finish all 10 of them by one o'clock in the afternoon. I'd get off at 3.30, stop at the liquor store and get 10 more and finish all 10 of them before eight o'clock at night. Right before I went to rehab, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures of fireball whiskey a day. One of those miniatures is two and a half shots. So 25 to 30 times two and a half I'm drinking upwards of 60 to 70 shots of fireball whiskey per day, every day for over a year and a half. And smoking pot. I get a brand new truck and I'm leaving the liquor store and I hit something. And I go home and I tell my wife, I hit something. I'm going to bed. I'm not dealing with it right now. And I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning like every good alcoholic. And I'm like, good morning. I'm going to go get some milk and water. You need anything from the store? And she looks at me and she's like, how are you going to do that? I said, in, in my truck in the driveway. She's like, Tim, go, go outside and look at your truck. And I go outside and my right front passenger tires hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely missing off the truck. It's gone. And I'm sitting there looking at my truck. I'm like, what in the hell happened? And she pops her head out the front door. She's like, you don't remember what you hit last night, do you? I said, I have no idea. She's like, Tim, you could have killed somebody or killed yourself. You can't stay here anymore. You, you got you to gotta figure this out, but I don't want you here with the kids. You got to go. So I called AAA. They put a spare tire on my truck. And I said, screw the mirror. I ain't worried about it now. I called my buddy. I'm like, hey, dude, uh, can I come to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. In a couple of days, she'll let me back in. But for the time being, let a couple of days blow over. And uh, I'll just come hang out with you. And he's like, sure, man, come on over. So I get to his house and he's like, well, your wife just kicked you out, man. We might as well go to the bar because you don't got to go home. I'm like, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's go to the bar. So we go to the bar, stay there for a couple hours and we drink and get shit faced. As I'm leaving the bar, less than 24 hours later, I rear end somebody at a red light. And I get out and I look and the guy's got a tow hitch on the back of his truck. So his truck is actually fine. But my whole front of my bumper was all jacked up. And I get out. And I'm like, man, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out. I smacked him on his back. I got in my truck and I took off. I go to my buddy's house and I'm like, man, I can't stay here, dude. I was like, I, I, gotta go. I just want to be by myself. I got to be by myself to figure this shit out. So I leave his house, stop at the liquor store, get 10 more Fireball whiskeys. And I go and sit at a park and ride where people park during the day and catch a bus or a train and go to work and come back. And I sit there. I turn my phone off because I didn't want to be bothered by anybody. I didn't want to hear nobody's shit. I didn't want to talk to nobody. 
I wanted to be alone and wallow in my sorries and beat myself up and go over all the years of me losing jobs and fighting with my wife and causing problems with my family. And I turned my phone off and sit there for 48 hours, drinking and passing out, drinking and passing out, drinking and passing and listening to sad ass music. And finally, March 5th, 2021, at seven after 10 in the morning, I turned my phone on after 48 hours of it being off. Two minutes later, my phone rings. And I look down and it says, Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm like, who the hell is this? So I pick it up and I'm like, hello? He's like, Lodging, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, who's this? He's like, this is Brandon Novak. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm in my truck. I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm drunk. And he says, good, motherfucker, that's what you need. He's like, I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I have a plane ticket ready for you this evening, 8.30 p.m. You're going to get on that plane. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to go get help. And I'm like, okay, man, I hear you. You know, I gave him the whole, okay, I hear you. I'm going to, blah, blah, and I hung up the phone. Ten minutes goes by and my wife calls me. And she's like, hey, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Can you please come home and take a shower, eat, pack your bags, and take a little nap? I had about four to five hours before the plane left. I'm like, okay, I I'll come home. So I go home, take a shower, eat, pack my bags. Well, I couldn't eat. Pack my bags, take a shower. I couldn't nap and I couldn't eat. I've been drinking for 48 hours. Not only is my stomach jacked up from all the liquor I've been drinking, but now I got anxiety and panic because now I got to go to I got to get on a plane and go to rehab in Florida. How long am I going to be away? You know, how the hell did I let my life get so bad that I've got to go to rehab to fix this? What the hell did I do to myself? And I started feeling like a piece of shit. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this to my family. I can't believe I did this to myself. And I'm sitting on the edge of my bed and um, my addiction grabs me by the hand and walks me to the basement of my home and uh, throws a rope around my neck and stands me up on a bucket in the dark in the corner of the basement of my house and tells me to jump, tells me to end everything because I can no longer take the pain anymore. And I listen and uh, I go down to the basement of my house. I throw a rope around my neck, I stand up on a bucket and uh, about a minute goes by and as I'm about to step off, my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom and she comes down the steps, literally like within five, 10 seconds of me about to step off. And, and she looks at me, she said, what are you doing? And I said, I, I can't do it. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop using drugs. I just want the pain to stop. I can't fight any longer. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this will do to your children? please, please get down and get on that airplane tonight. Get down. Everything is going to be all right. So I waited like 30 seconds. I got down and I fall to the floor. And I'm crying. I go upstairs and I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, Brandon. I'm like, uh, dude, I, I'm getting on that plane tonight, man. I got to go. If I don't go, my disease is going to kill me. I, I've got, I need help. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. I want to make sure you're getting on the plane and you're not going to catch a cab out of the airport and leave. I said, okay, okay, I will. Hours goes by. My mom picks me up, drives me to the airport. 
I get to the airport, I pass security. And I call him, I say, hey man, I'm past security. I got about 35 minutes for the plane takes off. I just want to let you know I'm, I'm getting on the plane. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you and you're about to get back everything you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down in the chair, waiting for them to call me to board the plane. As I sit down in the seat, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that came over my entire body. It was the equivalent of the warm blanket feeling I used to get when I took pain pills, when I took liquor, it engulfed my entire body. All my pain went away, my worry, my doubt, my fear, my anxiety went away. And at that exact moment, I hear this voice that I've never heard before in my life. It sure as shit wasn't me, but it was a calming, motherly voice and all it says is everything's going to be all right and i just sit there and i'm like what the hell was that and i finally realized at the age of 44 years old after 27 years of battling bipolar disorder drug addiction and alcohol abuse that i was finally in the right place in my time to go get the help i needed to save my life i get on the plane i go to rehab and I go full addict mode into rehab. I didn't miss any meetings. I journaled, I shared. I went to extra meetings for veterans and first responders. I worked out with a personal trainer Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I completely changed my diet and I started to believe in a higher power, which I never did before. I wouldn't say God or Jesus, but I, I believed in something other than myself. And that was the very first time that I ever even acknowledged or accepted that. I started to have faith in that what I had to go through wasn't happening to me, but it happened for me. It happened for me to realize how precious this life that we have is, how much I really truly took for granted and didn't appreciate what I had. And I didn't, I left, I left rehab. I went, I did 98 and 90 meetings in 90 days, got a sponsor, started working the steps of recovery, started living by the traditions, started praying every night, started going to the gym every single day. And at the, for the first time in my life, I'm now coming up in 17 months sober. I'm the healthiest, happiest person I've ever been. I can look in the mirror now and truly say that I love the person staring back at me. When before, when I looked in that mirror, all I saw was a freaking monster. All I saw was some person that I hated, the eyes that looked back to me. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be alive. When I got to rehab, the doctor told me, he said, Tim, your, your blood pressure is 165 over 147. You're on the verge of having a stroke. Your liver and kidney enzymes are four times what they should be. If you have continued to drink like this for the next year, you wouldn't have made it to the age of 47 because the damage you did to your kidneys and liver would have been irreversible and you would have ultimately died of, um, of drug addiction, um, alcohol abuse. He said, you came at the right time in your life for all of this to be reversed and you can live a normal life. So that's when I stopped believing in coincidences. There was no coincidence that I slept at 48 hours in my truck and two minutes later, after 48 hours, my friend called me. 
it was no coincidence that it happened that day and I was on the plane and the doctors took those tests and I realized that I was slowly killing myself that I didn't even know. The fact that I'm am able to share my stories and be grateful that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recovering addict. I never wanted, resented the fact that I was an addict or I never did the, why did I have to go through all this hell? Why did I have to go through 27 years? Because during recovery and during the steps of speaking with my sponsor and learning about myself, I've realized that that's just what I had to go through. That was my story. That's what I had to experience in order for me to truthfully and authentically share my experience with those who are still suffering. Those who think that they're alone, there's no way that anybody could possibly understand the pain that they're going through. There's help out there. There's recovery places to get into. There's people to speak to. We don't have to die from mental illness or addiction. If you're out there and you truly believe that there's that you're alone or you're ashamed to even talk about it, please know that there's nothing to be ashamed of. It takes courage to admit defeat. And once you take that step and reach your hand out for help, the help is out there. And I truly hope that everybody knows that they're not alone and other people do suffer and we're there to help each other. Uh, I'm, my life has changed so much in 17 months that my friend lied to me. I didn't get back 10 times. I've gotten back 100 times. And every single day I get something better and newer and I'm more grateful for, I got my family back, man. My, my girls, when I used to walk in the door, my house would scatter like roaches with the, with the lights coming on because they didn't know what father was coming in the door. My little girls were scared of their dad. Thank God I was never physically abusive. But I sure shit was verbally abusive. I said some nasty shit to the people I love the most. And now when I come in the door, my girls hug me. They kiss me. They tell me how proud they are of me. They tell me how grateful they are to have their father back. My wife tells, she told a friend the other day, they said, how, how's everything at home? She said, it's amazing. She said, my house is a home again. We don't fight. She said, and even if I want to fight, he just asked me, let's come up with a solution because I don't want to argue. She's like, it's like talking to, to a Buddha. She's like, he wants nothing to do with arguments. She's like, it's, it's just like, let's, let's solve the problem and move on. I'm just so done living in that world of anxiety and chaos and hectic. And, and I'm ready to, to move forward and, and start that new chapter in my life. And I truly believe it's me sharing my story with as many people as possible in hopes that they know that they're not alone, they can recover, and they can live the life that they've always wanted to live. That's awesome, Tim. Um, <clears throat> congratulations on your 17 months, and sorry again for the uh, introduction. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, so you used to do mixed martial arts. Did you see the... Uh, Patty the Batty speech there this weekend? I did. And you know what? I messaged him. Did you? <laughs> uh, I sent him a big, long message. And I congratulate him on the win. I said, but I congratulate you even more for your post-fight speech. Because 
We need more people like you on a stage that you have to make it more aware of mental illness. Um, I gave him a couple links because I, I partner, I'm partner with Rockstar Testimony, who's a mental health and um, addiction 501c3 nonprofit organization. And I sent him a bunch of links. We would love to have him talk about it for five or 10 minutes so we can put it out there. But that's what we need is more people that have the stage to bring awareness. I thought it was incredible for him to do that. Yeah, I thought so too. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Tin Man, I had a bunch of questions wrote down as you were going through, but then you continued answering them as uh, you shared your story. <laughs> you, did, you did an incredible job, man. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, no thank trouble to tell you uh, you checked out 50 podcasts this year. Hey? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Wicked job. Awesome. Um, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I, how long was the treatment center you went to? I did 32 days. Um, okay. they, my insurance would allow me to stay for another two weeks at an IOP program, mm -hmm. but it was out of pocket. So I was like, wait a second, my insurance is, they accept it, but I got to pay $25 a day to stay there. And it's like, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, your insurance will cover like the, the room and board, but you have to pay $25 for food and laundry. And I, I was like, did I complete my program? Did I complete my program? They're like, absolutely. You did above and beyond what most people do. I said, well, then I'm leaving at 32 days. I feel comfortable going home. That's awesome, man. Tim, I had a question about, um, I know you mentioned, you know, your wife and you were fighting, uh, you know, a little bit rocky at times. When did she kind of, like the, the pill portion of the oxys and all that, did she know what was going on with in that time or was it more towards the drinking of the whiskey where things got south or both? She knew I was having problems with the oxys because uh, I would run out and yeah. she would see the empty bottle and she'd be like, Tim, it's the 15th. Your refill isn't until the 30th. What are you going to do for the next 15 days? How many of these are you taking? Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain, babe. I, I would take two or three at a time and she'd flip out. And God, God, I mean, God bless her, but she definitely enabled me a lot. She, she, she would tell me to cut it back and give me ultimatums and then ultimately wouldn't stick by her ultimatums. So, which allowed me to continue to use. I'm not saying that that's an excuse or, or a justification of my use, but I wasn't held accountable the way I probably should have been. Not saying that that would have cut my addiction any shorter because we both know, you know, when you're an addict, you don't give a shit about anything or anybody. You, you're going to, you're going to get that, that fix or that drug and your alcohol in you. But she, I think she loved me a little too much, to be honest with you. Um, she would say, just take a couple of days off from drinking. I don't want to see beer in the refrigerator over the weekend. And, I, and every once in a while, I wouldn't put the, big, the, the beer in the refrigerator, but you're damn sure I have a cooler in the back of my truck full of beer. It just wouldn't be in the refrigerator for her and the kids to see. So I'd find my way around it. I'd sneak it. I'd hide it. Um, and then she would find out again and say, are you kidding me? You did it behind my back. You know, th th this shit's got to stop. You can't keep doing this to me. But she would never stick to her guns when she finally did stick to her guns and actually kicked me out of the house, I, I truly believe that was one of the awakening moments for me 
that finally I was like, wow, um, I've been with her since 1996. It's 2021. She's serious. Like, and she's my life. My kids are my life. My wife is my life. And if they don't want me, what, what, why even live? Why, why even be here anymore? Because that's truly the main thing for me that, that, that I love the most is my family. And if they don't want me, what, what, what am I going to do now? What else is going to happen to me? So I'm glad that she finally did kick me out, even though I went and drank and got in another car accident and all that stuff. But I believe that was the beginning to the end and also the beginning of my recovery. Tim, I liked how you were talking about a higher power. Um, I'm personally in AA and love it. And uh, when I first went into it, I hated the idea of a higher power. Um, (laughs) I just had no faith in faith anymore. But I find like once you start to have more faith in faith and actually work on having a higher power, life gets better. Um, So I really like what you were saying about the higher power because it is hard for people that are newer to really understand that. Yeah, and, and not to knock religion, I just, I'm not that Jesus Christ God guy, you know what I mean? I think there's much more out there. I, I, I think there definitely is something watching over us. I, I definitely believe in karma. The, the more good you put out, the more you get back. And I put out a lot of bad for a lot of long time. And I always wondered why my life was so shitty. It's because I was putting out bad stuff. And it's amazing how much my life has changed just by completely putting out good and not asking for anything in return. And that's one thing I do when I pray. I I pray for other people. I pray for good things to happen to other people. I never pray for myself. And I find that's helped as well. And that too many cool things have happened to me in my sobriety that I can't explain that I'm like, okay, that that's not a coincidence. That can't like when I first got home from rehab, I'm looking for home group. I'm in AA as well. I'm looking for home group. I'm like, where do I where am I going? I'm looking. And uh, there's one like 10 minutes from my house. I'm like, I'm gonna go there. And it's called Over the Rainbow. I'm like, okay, pretty pretty quaint and simple. Sounds good. I'll go there. I get there the very first day and I sit down. Five minutes goes by and the storm hits. And it, it goes for like 10 minutes and then it stops. A lady walks in the front door and she says, everybody come outside and look at the rainbow over our building. And I go outside and I look up and there's just a rainbow over my new meeting place called Over the Rainbow. And I just had a chuckle and I looked up and I was like, are you kidding me right now? I was like, that's not a coincidence. Like, that's just too cool. So that ended up making that my home group. And that's where I found my sponsor. And that's why I continue to go to this day. Tim, I, uh, I frequently tell people like there's like an energy with people in recovery, I find. And uh, you seem to have that energy where, you know, like you're grateful that like a second chance at life, I find. And it's, it's incredible to see, man. So thank you. Oh, thank I you for saying that. Yeah, no worries. And um, I had a question, like, I found when I entered recovery, I was kind of, the thought of, like, revisiting shit from my past just, like, terrified me, right? Like, I didn't want to dig deep, dig up, dig up those feelings and stuff like that. 
Um, in your recovery, have you been able to revisit stuff and, uh, and work on things from your past and continue to work on yourself every day? I have. And I tell you what, I was scared at first. I, re I really was. I was like, I don't want to deal with that shit. I, I don't want nothing to do with it. Let me just move on. And my sponsor says, how can you move on without taking care of what's behind you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I don't want you to dwell on it, but you need to acknowledge it in, in order to move on and to heal properly. He said, this is all about healing and moving on and becoming a better person. And you can't do that without taking care of what has been bothering you for so long. For example, my father thing that I held on for 30 plus years, thinking that I was the reason why he left and he didn't love me. And I, I talked to my mom and I got at rehab and she's like, you, you really thought your dad left because of you and you use that sometimes to drink and drug? I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh my God. She's like, hon, she's like, that had nothing to do with you. She's like, your father liked other women and he liked to cheat on me. She said, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. He loved you. And I said, well, why didn't he pick me up? She said, half the time he did have to work overtime. She goes, another half, he was chasing women because he's a selfish asshole. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. She said, but I can't believe you held on for that for so long. I said, well, I was a child and my dad left and he barely spoke to me and we barely had a relationship. Four months ago is the first time I saw my dad after four and a half years. And it's the first time I've seen my dad since the age of 18 being sober. And it was at my daughter's baby shower. I just uh, have a two month old grandson. and. Uh, my mom walks over to the table and she's like, your father's here. And I, I did get that, that, that warm anxiety feeling hit my chest real quick. But then the tools that I've been learning in recovery said, get up and go deal with it. And I get up and I walk over to him and I'm like, hey, old man, how you doing? And he looks at me. And it's a man who spent 37 years in the police force, uh, was in Vietnam, served in the army. And he looks at me and he starts crying and he hugs me and he comes back and looks me in my eyes again. He says, son, I'm so proud of you. I love you. Please don't let, ever let this happen again. I never want this much time to get, to get between us again. And uh, he hugged me and held on to me. I think the tightest that man has ever hugged me in my entire life. And the fact that I was able to look at him through sober eyes and through a grateful heart and to be able to let the past go. And that's what I told him. I said, dad, I just want to move forward. Whatever happened in the past happened in the past. I love you. You're my father. And I would love to have a relationship with you now because I'm a different man. And he said, I would love that too, son. That was a big, that was a big step for me. That was one of my amends that I, I had to make. And um, I, I, to be honest with you, man, I, I've been really open to becoming a new person because if you're going to do the recovery, if you're, anybody can be sober, but most of the time you're freaking miserable. If you're going to live the life of recovery, you've got to be open to change your life and become a better human being. You have got to be open mentally, spiritually, and physically to change your entire perspective on how life works and why we're here and how truly grateful it is that any one of us are even born you know the the odds of us being born is one in 400 billion 
one, sorry, one in 400 trillion that we were even born. So we were already a miracle. We're all born with something exceptional and something to give back. And I'm not going to waste any more time, man. I wasted 27 years of my life. You know, alcohol took and promised me everything. And I'm coming for everything that it took and promised me. I'm coming for it all. I'm now training for my first one-stage bodybuilding show in November. I just finished last month. I got third place in the Muscle and Fitness Magazine competition. First place was the cover of Muscle Fitness Magazine and a two-page spread inside and $25,000. Dude, I got third place out of like 10,000 people. And I was sad the next day. I was kind of bummed that I didn't win. And I beat myself up over it. And my mom called me and she said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm pretty sad. I, you know, I, I didn't get first. And she said, are you kidding me right now? She's like, Tim, from where you came from last year to within under a year and a half, you got third place in an international competition for a magazine. Son. You won. I love you. I'm so proud of you. This is a win and you need to look at it as such. And the sadness went away and, I, and my gratitude popped in and I said, you know what? I busted my ass and I, and I, I really did go after what I want and I'm not going to stop. Um, I've always wanted to do a bodybuilding show, but the alcohol and drugs always got in the way. And now nothing's getting in my way and I've got the right mindset to make it happen. Yeah, it's an amazing job, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hey, guys. Thank, thank you for letting me come on and share, man. I'm truly humbled, and I appreciate you allowing me to share my story. Thank you for having a podcast and a platform for people like me to be able to do so. Thank you. And, man, good luck in your competition coming up. Absolutely. Hey, I'll be in touch with you guys, you know? Absolutely, and, and, man. Yeah, and you let me know when things, you know, are going to air and post, and I'll put it on my page. I'll tag you guys. I'll promote your your web your um your podcast and try to get people to come there and try to get you more new followers, more you know new audience. Absolutely, man. We appreciate it a bunch, and we're gonna include all your info down below. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you were someone you know was struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Thank you very much.